the 30th of October, before the outbreak of World War II, will be remembered as that extraordinary night when the submerged anxieties of tens of thousands of Americans surfaced and coalesced into a flood of terror that swept the country between 9 o'clock Eastern Standard Time and dawn of the next day, men, women, and children in scores of towns and cities across the nation were in flight from objects that had no existence except in their imaginations. That is the opening paragraph of Howard Koch's book, The Panic Broadcast. Uh, Howard uh, was the writer of uh, tonight's performance that you're going to hear. Let me read you the back of his uh, book. It says, On October 30th, 1938, the planet Earth was invaded by men from Mars. On that unforgettable night, Orson Welles and his fellow actors broadcast a radio dramatization of H.G. Wells' The War of the Worlds. The show lasted 45 minutes. The story of the nationwide panic that followed reads, reads like science fiction. Thousands fled their homes in panic. Highways were jammed. One woman in Pennsylvania tried to poison herself. How could so many have been so prepared to be terrorized? Howard Koch, the man who wrote the, the radio play, has compiled the story of the broadcast itself and the panic that followed and offers a fascinating examination of one of the most extraordinary phenomena in history. Uh, his book is called, like I said, The Panic Broadcast, The Whole Story of the Night the Martians Landed, Orson Welles' Legendary Radio Show, Invasion from Mars. Uh, has a forward by Arthur C. Clarke. It's a pretty good little book. Um, the whole middle section is the script, uh, the original script. So there's not much to the book. Um, a few chapters in front and a few chapters after the actual script. But I believe this is one of those that you can get on Amazon for like a penny, and then you pay the three ninety nine shipping or whatever and get it sent to you. Uh, I picked it up at um, Powell's Books down in Oregon, and uh, have really, really enjoyed it. It's a good read. Anyway, well, hello again. This is Buck Benny speaking. Welcome to a completely unique listening experience. I don't know if this has ever been presented quite this way before. Uh, I, five years ago, I presented a version of War of the Worlds that was unique. And I'd found it that someone had done this, what I'm about ready to do. But I don't think they did it quite like this. I can't remember exactly how they did it. So uh, I would give them credit if I remember who they were. <laughs> Anyway, I don't. So, uh, I've created this myself. This is, like I say, completely unique. I was thinking about how I could present two different shows to you at the same time. Because, you see, War of the Worlds is the most famous radio show of all time. But I also want to bring you the most popular radio show of 1938. And some of you are realizing, well, that's two different things. And it is. 
Mercury Theatre on the Air was not very popular at this point. Uh, War of the Worlds, of course, would make it world famous, but that wouldn't happen until tomorrow. <laughs> but what we're going to have tonight is I'm going to, I decided I would try and recreate as close as I could what it would be like if you were in 1938 and if you were listening to the radio that evening. Now, I can't broadcast this on two separate channels of, a, of the radio station for you, right? But I thought the closest I could come would be to present a stereo presentation, which I usually present mono, if you don't know. But this will be completely stereo. So, uh, if you do not have uh, a stereo way of listening to this in stereo, make sure you're listening to the mono version. Uh, it'll be similar, but I don't think you'll get the full effect that you would from the stereo version. So, uh, And both versions will be available tonight. So, just kind of look at them and you can tell which one's stereo. I, I've labeled them which one's stereo and which one's mono. And if you don't know, just keep listening. <laughs> if you have the stereo one, it'll sound like complete gibberish to you in a few moments. And uh, when that happens, you'll go, hmm, I probably should switch over to the mono version or get on something where I can control my speakers. So here's, here's how I decided to do this. I was thinking, the only thing, because on the radio, the people used to be able to change the dial, and you'd switch, of course, from one radio station to another radio station by flipping the dial. Well, we're going to simulate that by having you be able to change from your left speaker to the right speaker. On your left speaker is going to be Orson Welles' War of the Worlds. On your right speaker is going to be the Chasen Sanborn Hour with Charlie McCarthy and Edgar Bergen, the most popular radio show of 1938, the one that most of the country would be listening to at this point in time. They were both presented at the exact same time on two different channels on the radio back in 1938. And so one of the things that led to folks panicking, I think one of the largest things anyway that led to folks panicking, was that they would listen to the beginning of the Edgar Bergen show. And you'll hear uh, the introduction, Edgar Bergen, so I'd be listening to the right channel first, which is the Edgar Bergen channel. And listen to that show start up and... Listen to the first bit, it's kind of funny, and it's all about Halloween and everything, it's great. And then, when it ends, that first bit, about uh, 12 minutes into the program or so, uh, their singer will come on and sing a song. And it's not the best song. So I would think that during the song, some folks would go, uh, let's see what's on the other channel. And they'd be flipping... And we would flip, you would flip over to your left hand channel. And that will bring up the volume for um, War of the Worlds. And then you can see what it would be like all of a sudden tuning into War of the Worlds about 12, 13, 14 minutes in and see what it's like. Because then you won't hear the warnings about the fact that it's just a radio play. You'll just all of a sudden jump into the middle of the most horrific part, really, of War of the Worlds. So I would suggest you try that. For those of you listening on mono, I will force this to happen. 
you're going to listen to I have the first, I've cut off the first 12 minutes of War of the Worlds. I know, sacrilege. No! But, but it's okay. For our experiment, we're going to do that. And I've put in the first 12 minutes or so. I'll find a good break. I haven't actually done this yet, but I will, I will get it set up. So it'll start, you'll hear Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy, and then right about the point that the song comes on, I'll give it a few bars probably, and so that it will be like a normal listener, and we'll flip over to War of the Worlds at that point, just a hard flip because it's mono, so we're all going. <laughs> and, and then you'll hear pick up the War of the Worlds from there on, um, thinking that chances are, because the people are freaking out, that they wouldn't be switching back and forth, they'd probably stay on War of the Worlds. Now, you folks in stereo can flip back and forth to your heart's content to compare the two shows and see what it would be like if somebody tuned in later or earlier. You can create your own little experiment, and you can flip back and forth. Now, uh, so I think that's one major reason. I think people were listening to the number one radio show in the country, not just for the night. I mean, this, is, this, was, this was the top-rated show. In fact, it was more than a top-rated show. It was a top-rated show, and at the peak of its um, of people tuning in. So it was like the the I Love Lucy show when it was the ultimate hit, or Amos and Andy when it was the top show. I mean, everybody listened to uh, the Chase and the Sanborn Hour with uh, Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy. So I do think a lot of folks listened in, flipped over, panicked. That's one of the reasons the panic happened. The other reason the panic happened, I believe, is because the writer decided to use... Uh, he, was, he was writing the script, and he decided, instead of making up a bunch of places, it would be more realistic if he used an actual um, Hamlet that he found and in the real world. And so he used a town in New Jersey. And, of course, <laughs> when he used this town, people would hear the name of real places, and it would progress, and he would have the Martians coming in and going to these different places. And so if you lived there, and you heard the name of all these places that you know, uh, for instance, I'm in the Northwest, so if I heard, uh, tuning in the radio, and I heard that Tacoma was being invaded, and that Seattle had been taken over, and then I heard them, they were coming across the bridge to Gig Harbor where I live, it would have more impact on me, and I would maybe start to freak out a little bit. And I think that's one of the reasons people freaked out. I guess I was thinking about how can I make folks understand um, how they would freak out and how they would believe the radio, because you wouldn't, these days, people would probably wouldn't believe when something like this is happening. But let's take something that is as trusted as radio was in the day, and radio news was in the day back in 1938. I was noticing the other night we were having a bunch of folks over to my house, and all of a sudden, everybody's phones went crazy. And it was, of course, an Amber Alert. And Amber Alerts, of course, when a child is is lost or taken, and they're trying to find 
overtook them quickly, so they have um, what's called an Amber Alert. I think uh, it's named after that because I believe the girl was Amber that they didn't find fast enough in things, and they thought if they could find kids faster, they could save more children that are abducted. And so they have this thing called the Amber Alert. Now, I guess, uh, and of course when you hear it, you take it seriously. I mean, you know this is a, a serious thing. But if someone was to take over, hypothetically, the Amber Alert system, and I was to hear it, and they said, say, my daughter or something was something that happened, even though I probably would know, you know, in my heart that that she's probably okay, she's at school, and that's where I should check in on her, or whatever it is, but um, because it comes across the Amber Alert, and it's something we trust so much, it would raise your anxiety, you would think this is real, you would think, and in that same way, I believe, back in 1938, by having something come across the radio and say that it was, and, and portray itself as news uh, bulletins, I think people would tend to believe that. Especially if you didn't catch the part of the show where it was saying that it was a, um, w was a play. Now, the other piece of it is people say, well, why wouldn't they change to other channels and things? I don't know, you get, I can see you get fixated on that channel. The other piece I would think, if I lived in New Jersey where this was supposed to be happening, uh, how many people would just listen for, say, ten minutes and then be freaked out so much that they run out of their house to try and get away or they try and um, find the creatures or whatever they decide to do? And so they're not, at that point, listen to the radio anymore. They're out and in action. So you could visualize how it could panic a huge amount of people. And, of course, that's how the radio show is so famous for panicking so many people. So uh, try and recreate that for yourself tonight by listening to the stereo broadcast and going back and forth. If you don't pan the speakers, you will get gibberish. I mean, you will hear junk out of the right and junk out of the left that don't make any sense together. Uh, so you have to pan left, pan right. Um, and if you don't like doing that, listen to the mono version. And then tomorrow night, I will present War of the Worlds in its entirety without me butchering it. <laughs> and so you could just listen to it uh, just straight through the normal way, uh, for those of you who would like to hear it that way. But I just thought, why not present something a little bit different and see if folks enjoy this. So I hope you enjoy this presentation of War of the Worlds. For some of you in stereo, for some of you in mono, whichever way you like to listen to it, um, and share it with some of your friends. It should be it should be a fun listen um, on this Halloween. So enjoy, and let's get started. So in a few seconds here, you're going to hear <laughs> craziness out of the left and right speaker. Just so you know, so be ready. Uh, pan right to begin with. Right, 
Ready, set. The makers of Chase and Sanborn Coffee, the superb blend you know is fresh, present the Chase and Sanborn Hour and your host, Don Amici. This is Don Amici rounding up the Chase and Sanborn gang and greeting you for all of them. A hearty hello from Nelson Eddy, Dorothy Lamour, Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy, Robert Arm Brewster, and Judy Canova with Annie and Zeke. We hope that you'll enjoy our show and that throughout the week you'll remain our friends as well as friends of Chase and Sanborn. With a, uh, Howdy, Mr. Amici. Uh, oh, hello, Judy. Is there anything I can do for you? Say, you know, Mr. Amici, I've been looking at that little McCarthy fella for four weeks now, and I'll be dogged if I can figure him out. Yeah, well, don't try it, Judy. We all have the same trouble. It sure is mystifying how them words comes a-bouncing across his wooden tonsils, ain't it? <laughs> yeah, it sure is. Yeah, and you know I keep a thinking of what folks down in Unadilla do if they see him. Would they be amazed, Judy? Amazed? <laughs> Listen, Mr. Amici, did you ever see a tree walking? <laughs> like as not they hang a slap bucket on to it. <laughs> hey, 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 what's going on here? Oh, well, Charlie, Judy only meant Yeah, yeah, I heard yeah. what she said, I heard. I oh, heard. shucks, Charlie, I was only complimenting you. Mm. Why, you ain't got nothing against me, have you? No, but I can very easily develop something. <laughs> oh, now, listen here, now that's too bad, Charles M. You see, uh... I was hoping that I and you could sort of, kind of get together like, you know. Uh-oh. I sort of like you. You do? Well, sure do. Bergen, get your gun. <laughs> <laughs> Never mind, Charlie. I'm sure you'll feel better when you know that our guest tonight is one of our mutual friends honoring us with a return visit, the lovely Madeline Carroll. Oh, Madeline, da-da-da-dum-da-da. <laughs> Thanks, Charlie, but we'll let Nelson Eddy do the singing. And it's the rousing, rip-roaring song of the vagabonds from the Vagabond King. Come on, you beg of the Paris town, you lazy rabble of low degree. You rabble of low degree. King Louis to keep his crown and save our city from Burgundy. Our city from Burgundy. You and I are good for nothing but to die. We can die for liberty. On the toil and danger will you serve a stranger and bow down to Burgundy. Sons of shame and sorrow, will you cheer tomorrow for the crown of Burgundy? The chain that bound us and away with Burgundy. Sons of toil and danger will you serve a stranger and bow down to Burgundy. Sons of shame and sorrow will you cheer tomorrow for the crown of Burgundy. Oh, I want, 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 I want,
occurring at regular intervals on the planet Mars. The spectroscope indicates the gas to be hydrogen and moving toward the Earth with enormous velocity. Professor Pearson of the observatory at Princeton confirms Farrell's observation and describes the phenomenon as, quote, like a jet of blue flame shot from a gun, unquote. We now return you to the music of Ramon Raquello playing for you in the Meridian Room of the Park Plaza Hotel situated in downtown New York. Now, a tune that never loses favor. The ever-popular Stardust. Raymond Raquello and his orchestra. Ladies and gentlemen, following on the news given in our bulletin a moment ago, the Government Meteorological Bureau has requested the large observatories of the country to keep an astronomical watch on any further disturbances occurring on the planet Mars. Due to the unusual nature of this occurrence, we have arranged an interview with a noted astronomer, Professor Pearson, who will give us his views on this event. In a few moments, we will take you to the Princeton Observatory at Princeton, New Jersey. We return you until then to the music of Ramon Raquello and his orchestra. We are ready now to take you to the Princeton Observatory at Princeton, where Carl Phillips, our commentator, will interview Professor Richard Pearson, famous astronomer. We take you now to Princeton, New Jersey. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is, this is Carl Phillips speaking to you. We will go. Tra 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 tra. A haunting we will go. <laughs> hey Charlie, the word is hunting. Well, not on Halloween, it ain't. <laughs> Say, uh, what are you going to do tomorrow night, Charlie? Oh, I don't know. Duck thrapples, I guess. What else can a fellow do on a measly seventy-five cents a week? <laughs> all right. All right. <laughs> Charlie, I wish you wouldn't take advantage of every opportunity to mention the allowance I give you. Oh? No. Why? It's embarrassing. Yeah. I am ashamed of it, too, Bergen. Yeah. <laughs> All you think of is money. Pleasure can be derived in many other ways. Name four. Well, <laughs> Say, Edgar, aren't you going to stage a Halloween party for Charlie tomorrow night? I certainly am not, Don. Oh. I haven't forgotten Charlie's party last year when he ruined the furniture and the carpets. Yeah, and broke windows, too. Yes, yes. Don't forget your broken windows. <laughs> Four broken windows. Yeah, five. Five? Yeah. I broke one after you took inventory. Oh. <laughs> what a party. Talk about laughs and the fun we had. 
Gee, I remember it still. I can assure you there will be no repetition of last year's riot. No. No. That experiment was much too expensive. Oh, sure. No party this year? No party. Oh. Aren't you going to do anything for a little itsy-bitsy Charlie on this Halloween? I don't know. You don't know? No. Oh, I may... I may tell you a ghost story. Yeah. <laughs> a ghost story? Yes. Do you think you can afford it? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Say, Edgar, I like ghost stories. Do you know any good ones? Well, I know one, Don. Hey, yeah. you don't mind if I join you, do you, Edgar? I like to listen to ghost stories. Well, not at all, Nelson. Oh, Edgar, are you were... going to tell a ghost story? Yes. I love them. They frighten me to death. <laughs> you better sit close to me, Dottie. Hold my hand. Well, this isn't really a ghost story. No. No. It's it's an actual experience. Oh, sure, 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 sure. They all start out that way. <laughs> a friend of mine by the name of Joe Franklin purchased an eight-room house in Hoosick Falls, which is a small town in upper New York. How far is that? How far is what? Uh, Hoosick Falls. What about it? How far is it? Well, from where? Oh. <laughs> Thank you, anyway. <laughs> I still don't think it's the right answer. <laughs> well, anyway, my friend, he bought this old house. Say, how many rooms did you say it had, Edgar? Uh, eight rooms. How uh, charming. Eight rooms? Two-story? No, it's a ghost story. <laughs> As a matter of fact, Dorothy, it was a two-story house. But the upstairs quarters were never used because there was a rumor that they were haunted. They were what? I say, they, they were inhabited by ghosts. Well, uh, didn't Joe Huzik know that before he bought the place? Uh, well, he... Uh, the name is Joe Franklin, and the house is in Huzik Falls. Oh, I see. Well, you want to watch that, Edgar? <laughs> <laughs> so, Say, Ed, did Joe Falls know that Huzik was haunted? Yes. <laughs> Don, the name is Franklin, and the house is in Huzik Falls. Uh, it was an eight-story, two-room house. What I yeah. mean is... <laughs> We got him, boys. We an eight-story, two-room house, huh? <laughs> What he means, it's an eight-house, two-story room. No, no. <laughs> Did anybody live in it? Yeah. Yeah, Huzik lived downstairs. <laughs> and he raised goats upstairs. <laughs> now, wait a minute. Who lived in what? Uh, Mr. Poughkeepsie. <laughs> lived in Schenectady. I don't know. What is this? <laughs> Well, I don't think you people want to hear this story at all. Of course, if you don't, we'll just say so that... Now, now, Bergen, don't be sensitive now. They at least give me the curse. Of course, of course, we want to hear the story, don't we, Don? Why, sure we do. Have you heard it before, Charlie? Yeah, I hear it every Halloween. He does it all. <laughs> he brings it out, yeah. Is it a good story? It's awful. But let's egg him on. Yeah. Oh, come on, come on, Edgar. Tell us the rest of the story. What was your friend's name? Oh, well, let's forget his name, and let's forget he's my friend. Oh, forgetting friends, huh? What's the matter? Did he write for money? No, no, no. He did not write for money. Do you understand? Uh, no, he didn't. Oh. Is, is him sore, Bergen? No, no. <laughs> Oh, come on, Edgar. We'll behave. Tell us. Very well. I shall make a final attempt, but I insist on absolute silence. Yes, got it. Quiet now. And stop whispering, please. Yes. Excuse me. Is it all right if I breathe a little? Oh, yeah. <laughs> now, this is a true story. Uh-huh. 
But if at any time you question the veracity of my statements, stop me. We sure will. <laughs> this incident took place about, uh, well, I should say about eight years ago, at which time I, I was considered quite a handsome young man. Stop! All right. <laughs> Charlie, if you'll only keep quiet, you'll find that this story is very, very gripping. Griping is the word. (laughs) Now, you keep quiet, Charlie. We want to hear this story. Thank you, Don. Okay, Edgar. Uh, Oh, you. All right. (laughs) Two-facing. All right. Now, where was I? You're right here. Yes, I'm Picture, if you can, an old house with the foundation settling, sagging roof, peeling wallpaper. Can you picture it? Picture it? We live in it. <laughs> in this house, there had formerly lived an old miser. Of course, you know what a miser is. Oh, sure, sure. A miser is a man who thinks 75 cents a lot. No. <laughs> no, you don't. <laughs> that burns him up. <laughs> Now, this miser had lived and died in one of the upstairs bedrooms, and it was believed that his ghost haunted it. Uh, the plot thickens. <laughs> and do you know, Charlie, I was the first person brave enough to spend a night in that bedroom. Ah, uh, oh, sure, sure, sure. <laughs> Nothing happened until midnight. Nothing ever does. <laughs> and then, out of the still of the night, I heard the old grandfather's clock in the hall strike the witching hour. Bong. Cuckoo, cuckoo. Don, will you please stop? Yeah, when you hear the next cuckoo, it'll be exactly Bergen. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, enough of that. Yeah. Fellas, will you stop interrupting? <laughs> Gee, you're being very rude. Oh, now keep quiet. And very Charlie. unfunny. And the all least right. you can do. All right, all right. Will you stop too, Charlie? Oh, me? Yes. I was. Th- you're the worst one of all. Is that so? Yes. <laughs> Shortly after midnight, I heard a peculiar noise, as if someone were tapping on the walls. Oh, all right. I thought I saw something. No, no. Tapping on the walls. Yes, yes. And I heard footsteps on the ceiling. I couldn't figure out what it was. Maybe you had a snootful. No, no. (laughs) I was only trying to help. Well, please don't. All right. No, no. Then suddenly, the steps got closer and closer. And then, without warning, a horrible figure pounced upon me. Something tugged at my memory. Where had I seen that ghostly face before? In a mirror? No, no. (laughs) Uh, That settles it. That settles what? I'm not going to finish this story. Well, why not? Well, I'm not going to make a fool of myself. Oh, I don't know. (laughs) Yes, you're right. You're right. I have made a fool of myself. Well, it certainly took you long enough to get wise. A few years ago, a song about a couple of people who were very, very tired swept the country. Remember, let's put out the lights and go to sleep. Well, now another one has come along, and it looks like just as big a hit. It's by Hoagie Carmichael, and it's called, simply enough, Two Sleepy People. Dorothy Lamour shows how it goes, and very nicely, too. Dorothy? <laughs> Look at you and look at me, just two wilted flowers. 
we should get a cuckoo clock for this house of ours. Uh, you got a cigarette? Oh, honey, no. Leather, but that's face. Ladies and gentlemen, it's indescribable. I can hardly force myself to keep looking at it. It's so awful. The eyes are black and they gleam like a serpent. The mouth is that's kind of V-shaped with saliva dripping from its rimless lips. It seemed to oh, quiver and pulsate. And the monster or whatever it is can hardly move. It seems weighed down by uh, possibly gravity or something. The thing's rising up now and the crowd falls back. It seems plenty. The most extraordinary experience, ladies and gentlemen. I can't find words. And, well, I'll pull this microphone with me as I talk. I'll... I have to stop the description so I can take a new position. Hold on, will you please? I'll be right back in a minute. We are bringing you an eyewitness account of what's happening on the Wilmoth Farm, Grover's Mill, New Jersey. Now return you to Carl Phillips at Grover's Mill. Ladies and gentlemen, my on? Ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, here I am, back of a stone wall that adjoins Mr. Wilma's garden. From here, I get a sweep of the whole scene. I'll give you every detail as long as I can talk and as long as I can see. The more state police have arrived. They're drawing up a cordon in front of the pit. About 30 of them. No need to push the crowd back now. They're willing to keep their distance. The captain's conferring with someone. Can't quite see who. Oh, yes, I believe it's Professor Pearson. Yes, it is. Now, now they've parted, and the professor moves around one side, studying the object while the captain and two policemen advance with something in their hands. I can see it now. It's a white handkerchief tied to a pole. Flag of truce. If those creatures know what that means, what anything means. Wait a minute. Something's happening. A humped shape is rising out of the pit. I can make out a small beam of light against a mirror. What's that? There's a jet of flame springing from the mirror and it leaps right at the advancing men. It strikes them head on. Lord, they're turning into flames. Now the whole field's caught up by the woods, the bars, the, the gas tanks, tanks of the automobiles spreading everywhere. Coming this way now, about 20 yards to my right. Ladies and gentlemen, due to circumstances beyond our control, we are unable to continue the broadcast from Grover's Mill. Evidently, there's some difficulty with our field transmission. However, we will return to that point at the earliest opportunity. In the meantime, we have a late bulletin from San Diego, California. Professor Indelkoffer, speaking at a dinner of the California Astronomical Society, expressed the opinion that the explosions on Mars are undoubtedly nothing more than severe volcanic disturbances on the surface of the planet. We continue now with our piano interlude. Ladies and gentlemen, I've just been handed a message that came in from Grover's Mill by telephone. Just one moment, please. At least 40 people, including six state troopers, lie dead in a field east of the village of Grover's Mill. Their bodies burned and distorted beyond all possible recognition. The next voice you hear will be that of Brigadier General Montgomery Smith, commander of the state militia at Trenton, New Jersey. 
I have been requested by the governor of New Jersey to place the counties of Mercer and Middlesex as as far west as Princeton and uh, east to Jamesburg under martial law. No one will be permitted to enter this area except by special pass issued by state or military authorities. Four companies of state militia are proceeding from Trenton to Grover's Mill and uh, will aid in the evacuation of homes within the range of military operations. Thank you. You have just been listening to General Montgomery Smith commanding the state militia at Trenton. In the meantime, further details of the catastrophe at Grover's Mill are coming in. The strange creatures, after unleashing their deadly assault, crawled back in their pit and made no attempt to prevent the efforts of the firemen to recover the bodies and extinguish the fire. The combined fire departments of Mercer County are fighting the flames which menace the entire countryside. We have been unable to establish any contact with our mobile unit at Grover's Mill, but we hope to be able to return you there at the earliest possible moment. In the meantime, we take you to... Just one moment, please. Ladies and gentlemen, I have just been informed that we have finally established communication with an eyewitness of the tragedy. Professor Pearson has been located at a farmhouse near Grover's Mill where he has established an emergency observation post. As a scientist, he will give you his explanation of the calamity. The next voice you hear will be that of Professor Pearson, brought to you by direct wire. Professor Pearson. Of the creatures in the rocket cylinder at Grover's Mill, I can give you no authoritative information, either as to their nature, their origin, or their purposes here on Earth. Of their destructive instrument, I might venture some conjectural explanation. For one of a better term, I shall refer to the mysterious weapon as a heat ray. It's all too evident that these creatures have scientific knowledge far in advance of our own. It's my guess that in some way they are able to generate an intense heat in a chamber of practically absolute non-conductivity. This intense heat they project in a parallel beam against any object they choose by means of a polished parabolic mirror of unknown composition, much as the mirror of a lighthouse projects a beam of light. That is my conjecture of the origin of the heat ray. Thank you, Professor Pearson. Ladies and gentlemen, here is a bulletin from Trenton. It is a brief statement informing us that the charred body of Carl Phillips has been identified in a Trenton hospital. Now, here's another bulletin from Washington, D.C., the office of the director of the National Red Cross reports 10 units of Red Cross emergency workers have been assigned to the headquarters of the state militia stationed outside of Grover's Mill, New Jersey. Here's a bulletin from State Police, Princeton Junction. The fires at Grover's Mill and vicinity are now under control. Scouts report all quiet in the pit, and there is no sign of life appearing from the mouth of the cylinder. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we have a special statement from Mr. Harry McDonald, vice president in charge of operations. We have received a request from the state militia of Trenton to place at their disposal our entire broadcasting facilities. In view of the gravity of the situation and believing that radio has a responsibility to serve in the public interest at all times, we are turning over our facilities to the state militia at Trenton. We take you now to the field headquarters of the state militia near Grover's Mill, New Jersey. This is Captain Lansing of the Signal Corps, attached to the state militia, now engaged in military operations in the vicinity of Grover's Mill. 
Situation arising from the reported presence of certain individuals of unidentified nature is now under complete control. The cylindrical object, which lies in a pit directly below our position, surrounded on all sides by eight battalions of infantry, without heavy field pieces, but adequately armed with rifles and machine guns. All cause for alarm, if such cause ever existed, is now entirely unjustified. Things, whatever they are, do not even venture to poke their heads above the pit. I can see their hiding place plainly in the glare of the searchlights here. With all their reported resources, these creatures can scarcely stand up against heavy machine gun fire. Anyway, it's an interesting outing for the troops. I can make out their cocky uniforms crossing back and forth in front of the lights. Looks almost like a real war. There appears to be some slight smoke in the woods bordering the Millstone River. Probably fire started by campers. Well, uh, we ought to see some action soon. One of the companies is deploying on the left flank. A quick thrust and it'll all be over. Now, wait a minute. I see something on top of the cylinder. No, no, it's nothing but a shadow. Now the troops are on the edge of the Wilmoth Farm. 7,000 armed men closing in on an old metal tube. A tub, rather. Well, wait, that wasn't a shadow. It's something moving. Solid metal, kind of a shield-like affair rising up out of the cylinder. It's going higher and higher. What? It's, it's standing on legs, actually rearing up on a sort of metal framework. Now it's reaching above the trees and the searchlights are on it. Hold on. Ladies and gentlemen, I have a grave announcement to make. Incredible as it may seem, both the observations of science and the evidence of our eyes lead to the inescapable assumption that those strange beings who landed in the Jersey farmlands tonight are the vanguard of an invading army from the planet Mars. The battle which took place tonight at Grover Mills has ended in one of the most startling defeats ever suffered by an army in modern times. 7,000 men armed with rifles and machine guns pitted against a single fighting machine of the invaders from Mars. 120 known survivors. The rest strewn over the battle area from Grover's Mill to Plainsboro, crushed and trampled to death under the metal feet of the monster, or burned to cinders by its heat ray. The monster is now in control of the middle section of New Jersey and has effectively cut the state through its center. Communication lines are down from Pennsylvania to the Atlantic Ocean. Railroad tracks are torn and service from New York to Philadelphia discontinued except routing some of the trains through Allerton and Phoenixville. Highways to the north, south, and west are clogged with frantic human traffic. Police and army reserves are unable to control the mad flight. By morning, the fugitives will have swelled Philadelphia, Camden, and Trenton. It is estimated to twice their normal population. Martial law prevails throughout New Jersey and eastern Pennsylvania. At this time, we take you to Washington for a special broadcast on the national emergency. The Secretary of the Interior. Citizens of the nation, I shall not try to conceal the gravity of the situation that confronts the country, nor the concern of your government in protecting the lives and property of its people. However, I wish to impress upon you private citizens and public officials, all of you, the urgent need of calm and resourceful action. Fortunately, this formidable enemy is still confined to a comparatively small area, and we may place our faith in the military forces to keep them there. 
In the meantime, placing our faith in God, we must continue the performance of our duties, each and every one of us, so that we may confront this destructive adversary with a nation united, courageous, and consecrated to the preservation of human supremacy on this earth. I thank you. You have just heard the Secretary of the Interior speaking from Washington. Bulletins too numerous to read are piling up in the studio here. We're informed that the central portion of New Jersey is blacked out from radio communication due to the effect of the heat ray upon power lines and electrical equipment. Here is a special bullet in New York. Cables have been received from English, French, and German scientific bodies offering assistance. Astronomers report continued gas outbursts at regular intervals on the planet Mars. The majority voiced the opinion that the enemy will be reinforced by additional rocket machines. There have been several attempts made to locate Professor Pearson of Princeton, who has observed Martians at close range. It is feared he was lost in the recent battle. Langham Field, Virginia. Scouting planes report three Martian machines visible above treetops, moving north toward Somerville with population fleeing ahead of them. The heat ray is not in use, although advancing at express train speed, invaders pick their way carefully. They seem to be making a conscious effort to avoid destruction of cities and countryside. However, they stop to uproot power lines, bridges, and railroad tracks. Their apparent objective is to crush resistance, paralyze communication, and disorganize human society. Here is a bulletin from Basking Ridge, New Jersey. Coon hunters have stumbled on a second cylinder similar to the first, embedded in the Great Swamp 20 miles south of Morristown. Army field pieces are proceeding from Newark to blow up the second invading unit before the cylinder can be opened in the fighting machine rig. They are taking up a position in the foothills of Watchung Mountains. Another, another, another bulletin from Langham Field, Virginia. Scouting planes report enemy machines now three in number, increasing speed northward, kicking over houses and trees in their evident haste to form a conjunction with their allies south of Marstown. Machines also sighted by telephone operator east of Middlesex within 10 miles of Plainfield. Here's a bulletin from Winston Field, Long Island. A fleet of army bombers carrying heavy explosives flying north in pursuit of enemy. Scouting planes act as guides. They keep the speeding enemy in sight. Just a moment, please, ladies and gentlemen. We've, uh, we've run special wires to the artillery line in adjacent villages to give you direct reports in the zone of the advancing enemy. First, we take you to the battery of the 22nd Field Artillery, located in the Watching Mountains. Range 32 meters. 32 meters. Direction 39 degrees. 39 degrees. Fire. Forty yards to the right, sir. Ship range, 31 meters. 31 meters. Projection, 37 degrees. 37 degrees. Fire. Hit, sir. Got the tripod of one of them. That's stop. The others are trying to repair Quick, it. Quick, get the range. Ship, 50, 30 meters. 30 meters. Projection, 27 degrees. 27 degrees. Fire. Can see the fell answer. Letting off a smoke. What is it? Black smoke, sir. Moving this way. Flying close to the ground. Moving fast. Put on gas masks. Get ready to fire. Shift to 24 meters. 24 meters. Projection, 24 degrees. 
24 degrees. Fire. Can't see, sir. Smoke's coming nearer. Get the rain. Twenty-three meters. Twenty-three meters. Bombing plane V-843 off Bayonne, New Jersey. Lieutenant Volt, commanding eight bombers, reporting to Commander Fairfax Langham Field. This is Volt reporting to Commander Fairfax Langham Field. Enemy tripod machines now in sight. Reinforced by three machines from the Morristown Cylinder. Six altogether. One machine partially crippled. Believed hit by shell from army gun in Wachung Mountains. Guns now appear silent. A heavy black fog hanging close to the earth of extreme density, nature unknown. No sign of heat ray. Enemy now turns east, crossing Passaic River into the Jersey marshes. Another straddles the Pulaski Skyway. Evident objective is New York City. They're pushing down a high-tension power station. Machines are close together now, and we're ready to attack. Planes circling, ready to strike. A thousand yards, and we'll be over the first. Eight hundred yards. Six hundred. Four hundred. Two hundred. There they go. The giant arm raised. Green flash. They're spraying us with flame. Two thousand feet. Engines are giving out. No chance to release bombs. Only one thing left. Drop on them, plane and all. We're diving on the first one. Now the engine's gone. Eight. This is Bayonne, New Jersey, calling Langham Field. This is Bayonne, New Jersey, calling Langham Field. Come in, please. This is Langham Field. Go ahead. Eight Army bombers in engagement with enemy tripod machines over Jersey Flats. Engines incapacitated by heat ray. All crashed. One enemy machine destroyed. Enemy now discharging heavy black smoke in direction of... This is Newark, New Jersey. This is Newark, New Jersey. Warning. Poisonous black smoke pouring in from Jersey marshes. Reaches South Street. Gas masks useless. Urge population to move into open spaces. Automobiles use routes 7, 23, 24. Avoid congested areas. Smoke now spreading over, over Raymond Boulevard. QX2L calling CQ, 2X2L calling CQ, 2X2L calling 8X3R. Come in, please. 
This is 8X3R coming back at 2X2L. Eyes reception. Eyes reception. K, please. Where are you, 8X3R? What's the matter? Where are you? I'm speaking from the roof of Broadcasting Building. I'm speaking from the roof of Broadcasting Building, New York City. The bells you hear are ringing to warn the people to evacuate the city as Martians approach. Estimated in the last two hours, three million people have moved out along the roads to the north. Hutchison River Parkway is still kept open for motor traffic. Avoid bridges to Long Island, hopelessly jammed. All communication with Jersey Shore closed ten minutes ago. No more defenses. Our army is wiped out. Artillery, Air Force, everything wiped out. This may be the last broadcast. We'll stay here to the end. People are holding service here below us in the cathedral. Now I look down the harbor, all, all manner of boats, overloaded with fleeing population, pulling out from docks. Streets are all jammed. Noise in crowds like New Year's Eve in city. Wait a minute, the, the enemy is now in sight above the Palisades. Five, five great machines. First one is crossing the river. I can see it from here, wading, wading the Hudson like a man wading through a brook. A bulletin is handed me. Martian cylinders are falling all over the country. One outside of Buffalo, one in Chicago, St. Louis. Seem to be timed in space. Now the first machine reaches the shore. He stands watching, looking over the city. The steel cowlish head is even with the skyscrapers. He waits for the others. Rise like a line of new towers on the city's west side. Now they're lifting their metal hands. This is the end now. Smoke comes out, black smoke drifting over the city. People in the streets see it now. They're running toward the East River, thousands of them, dropping in like rats. Now the smoke's spreading faster. It's reached Times Square. People are trying to run away from it, but it's no use. They, they're falling like flies. Now the smoke's crossing 6th Avenue. 5th Avenue. A uh, hundred yards away. It's, it's 50 feet.
CQ. Two X two L calling CQ. Two X two L calling CQ New York. Isn't there anyone on the air? Isn't there anyone on the air? Isn't there anyone? Two X two L. You are listening to a CBS presentation of Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the Air in an original dramatization of The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. The performance will continue after a brief intermission. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells, starring Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the Air. set down these notes on paper. I'm obsessed by the thought that I may be the last living man on earth. I've been hiding in this empty house near Grover's Mill, a small island of daylight cut off by the black smoke from the rest of the world. All that happened before the arrival of these monstrous creatures in the world now seems part of another life. A life that has no continuity with the present furtive existence of the lonely derelict who pencils these words on the back of some astronomical notes bearing the signature of Richard Pearson. I look down at my blackened hands and I try to connect them with a professor who lives at Princeton and who on the night of October 20th glimpsed through his telescope an orange splash of light on a distant planet. My wife... My colleagues, my students, my books, my observatory, my my world. Where are they? Did they ever exist? Am I Richard Pearson? What day is it? Do days exist without calendars? Does time pass when there are no human hands left to wind the clocks? Writing down my daily life, I tell myself I shall preserve human history between the dark covers of this little book that was meant to record the movements of the stars. But to write, I must live, and to live, I must eat. Find moldy bread in the kitchen and an orange not too spoiled to swallow. Keep watch at the window. Time to time, I catch sight of a Martian above the black smoke. The smoke still holds the house in its black coil, but at length there's a hissing sound, and suddenly I see a Martian mounted on his machine, spraying the air with a jet of steam as if to dissipate the smoke. I watch in a corner as his huge metal legs nearly brush against the house. Exhausted by terror, I fall asleep. Morning. Morning. Sun streams in the window. The black cloud of gas is lifted, and the scorched meadows to the north look as though a black snowstorm had passed over them. 
I venture from the house. I make my way to a road, no traffic. Here in their wrecked car, baggage overturned, a blackened skeleton. Push on north. For some reason I feel safer trailing these monsters than running away from them. And I keep a careful watch. I've seen the Martians feed. Should one of their machines appear over the top of trees, I'm ready to fling myself flat on the earth. Come to a chestnut tree. October. Chestnuts are ripe. Fill my pockets. I must keep alive. Two days I wander in a vague northerly direction through a desolate world. Finally, I notice a living creature. A small red squirrel in a beech tree. I stare at him and wonder. He stares back at me. I believe at that moment the animal and I shared the same emotion. The joy of finding another living being. Push on north. I find dead cows in a brackish field and beyond the charred ruins of a dairy in a silo. Main standing guard over the wasteland like a lighthouse. Deserted by the sea. Stride the silo, purchase a weathercock. The arrow points north. North. Next day, I come to a city. City vaguely familiar in its contours, yet its buildings strangely dwarfed and leveled off as if... If a giant had sliced off its highest towers with a capricious sweep of his hand. Reached the outskirts, I found Newark. Newark, undemolished but humbled by some whim of the advancing Martians. Presently, with an odd feeling of being watched, I caught sight of something crouching in a doorway. I made a step towards it. It rose up and became a man. Man armed with a large knife. Stop! Where do you come from? Oh, I come from. from many places. A long time ago, from Princeton. Princeton, huh? That's near Grover's Mill. Yes. Grover's Mill. <laughs> There's no food here. This is my country. All this end of town down the river. There's only food for one. Which way are you going? I don't know. I guess I'm looking for people. Hey, what was that? Did we hear something just then? No. Only a bird. A live bird. Yeah. You get to know that birds have shadows these days. Hey, we're in the open here. Let's crawl in this doorway here and talk. Have you seen any Martians? No. They've gone over to New York. Night, the sky's alive with their lights, just as if people were still living in it. By daylight, you can't see them. Five days ago, a couple of them carried something big across the flats from the airport. I think they're learning how to fly. Fly? Yeah, fly. Hmm. Then it's all over with humanity. Stranger, there's still you and I. Two of us left. Yeah. They got themselves in solid. They wrecked the greatest country in the world. Those green stars, they're probably falling somewhere every night. 
They've only lost one machine. There isn't anything to do. We're done. We're licked. Where were you? You're in a uniform. Yeah, what's left of it. I was in the militia. National Guard. <laughs> That's good. There wasn't any war. Any more than there's war between men and ants. Yes, but we're eatable ants. I found that out. What'll they do to us? I thought it all out. Right now, we're caught as we're wanted. A Martian only has to go a few miles to get a crowd on the run. But they won't keep on doing that. They'll begin catching us systematic like keeping the best and storing us in cages and things. They haven't begun on us yet. Not begun? Not begun. All that's happened so far is because we don't have sense enough to keep quiet. Bothering them with guns and such stuff and losing our heads and rushing off in crowds. Now, instead of our rushing around blind, we've got to fix ourselves up. Fix ourselves up according to the way things are now. Cities, nations, civilization, progress. Yes, but if that's so, what is there to live for? Well, there won't be any more concerts for a million years or so and no nice little dinners at restaurants. If it's amusement you're after, I guess the game's up. What is there left? Life, that's what. I want to live. Yeah, and so do you. We're not going to be exterminated. And I don't mean to be caught either. Tamed and fattened and bred like an ox. What are you going to do? I'm going on. Right under their feet. I got a plan. We men as men... We're finished. We don't know enough. We've got to learn plenty before we got a chance. We've got to live and keep free while we learn, see? I've thought it all out, see? Well, tell me the rest. Well, it isn't all of us that are made for wild beasts. That's what it got it. That, that's what it gotta be. That's why I watched you. Watched you. All those little office workers that used to live in these houses, they'd be no good. They haven't any stuff in them. They used to run. Run off to work. I've seen hundreds of them running to catch their commuter's train in the morning. Afraid they could can if they didn't. Running back at night. Afraid they wouldn't be in time for dinner. Lives insured and a little invested in case of accidents. Yeah, and on Sundays. Worried about the hereafter. Well, the Martians, they'll be a godsend for those guys. Nice roomy cages. Good food. Careful breeding. No worries. Yeah, after a week or so of chasing around the fields on empty stomachs. They'll come and be glad to be caught. You've thought it all out, haven't you? Sure, you bet I have. That isn't all. These Martians are going to make pets of some of them. Train them to do tricks. Who knows, get sentimental over the pet boy who grew up and had to be killed. Yeah, and some maybe. They'll train to hunt us. Oh, no, it's impossible. Human yes, race. they will. There's men who do it gladly. Me, by. In the meantime, you and I and others like us, where are we to live when the Martians own the earth? I got it all figured out. We'll live underground. I've been thinking about the sewers. Under New York, there are miles and miles of them. The main ones, they're big enough for anybody. Then there's cellars, vaults, underground storerooms, railway tunnels, subways. Begin to see, huh? We'll get a bunch of strong men together. No weaklings. That rubbish, out. As you meant me to go. Well, I give you a chance, didn't I? Won't quarrel about that. Go on. Well, we got to make safe places for us to stay in, see? Get all the books we can. Science books. 
That's where men like you come in, see? We raid the museums. We'll even spy on the Martians. May not be so much we have to learn before... Listen. Just imagine this. Four or five of their own fighting machines suddenly start off. Heat rays right and left. Not a Martian in them. Not a Martian in them, see? But men. Men who've learned the way how. May even in our time. Gee. Imagine having one of them lovely things with its heat ray wide and free. We turn it on Martians. We turn it on men. We bring everybody down on their knees. That's your plan. Yeah. You. Me. A few more of us. We'd own the world. I see. Hey. Hey, what's the matter? Where are you going? Not to your world. Bye, stranger. Well, after parting with the artilleryman, I came at last to the Holland Tunnel, entered that silent tube, anxious to know the fate of the great city on the other side of the Hudson. Cautiously, I came out of the tunnel and made my way up Canal Street. Reached 14th Street, and there again were black powder and several bodies and an evil, ominous smell from the gratings of the cellars of some of the houses. I wandered up through the 30s and 40s, stood alone on Times Square, caught sight of a lean dog running down 7th Avenue with a piece of dark brown meat in his jaws and a pack of starving mongrels at his heels. Made a wide circle around me as though he feared I might prove a fresh competitor. Walked up Broadway in the direction of that... that strange powder, past silent shop windows, displaying their mute wares to empty sidewalks. Past the Capitol Theater, silent, dark. Past a shooting gallery where a row of empty guns faced an arrested line of wooden ducks near Columbus Circle... I noticed models of 1939 motor cars in the showrooms facing empty streets. Over the top of the General Motors building, I watched a flock of black birds circling in the sky. Hurried on. Suddenly, I caught sight of the hood of a Martian machine, standing somewhere in Central Park, gleaming in the late afternoon sun. An insane idea. I, I, I rushed recklessly across Columbus Circle and into the park. I, I climbed a small hill above the pond at 60th Street and... From there, I could see, standing in a silent row along the mall, 19 of those great metal titans, their cowls empty, their steel arms hanging listlessly by their sides. I looked in vain for the monsters that inhabit those machines. Suddenly, my eyes were attracted to the immense flock of black birds that hovered directly below me. They circled to the ground. And there before my eyes, stark and silent lay the Martians with the hungry birds pecking and tearing brown shreds of flesh from their dead bodies. Later, when their bodies were examined in laboratories, it was found that they were killed by the putrefactive and diseased bacteria against which their systems were unprepared. Slain, after all, man's defenses had failed by the humblest thing that God, as wisdom, has put upon this earth. Before the cylinder fell, there was a general persuasion that through all the deep of space, no life existed beyond the petty surface of our minute sphere. 
Now we see further. Dim and wonderful is the vision I've conjured up in my mind of life spreading slowly from this little seedbed of the solar system throughout the inanimate vastnesses of sidereal space, but a remote dream, maybe. Maybe that the destruction of the Martians is only a reprieve to them and not to us. Is the future ordained, perhaps? Ah, strange it now seems to sit in my peaceful study at Princeton, writing down this last chapter of the record, begun at a deserted farm in Grover's Mill. Strange to watch children playing in the streets. Strange to see young people strolling on the green where the new spring grass heals the last black scars of a bruised earth. Strange to watch the sightseers enter the museum where the dissembled parts of a Martian machine are kept on public view. Strange when I recall the time when I first saw it. Bright and clean-cut, hard and silent under the dawn of that last great day. This is Orson Welles, ladies and gentlemen. Out of character to assure you that the War of the Worlds has no further significance than as the holiday offering it was intended to be. The Mercury Theater's own radio version of dressing up in a sheet and jumping out of a bush and saying boo. Starting now, we couldn't soap all your windows and steal all your garden gates by tomorrow night, so we did the best next thing. We annihilated the world before your very ears and utterly destroyed the CBS. You will be relieved, I hope, to learn that we didn't mean it and that both institutions are still open for business. So goodbye, everybody, and remember, please, for the next day or so, the terrible lesson you learned tonight. That grinning, glowing, globular invader of your living room is an inhabitant of the pumpkin patch, and if your doorbell rings and nobody's there, that was no Martian. It's Halloween. <laughs> Tonight, the Columbia Broadcasting System and its affiliated stations, Coast to Coast, has brought you The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells, the 17th in its weekly series of dramatic broadcasts featuring Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the air. Next week, we present a dramatization of three famous short stories. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System.